This is the Water Cooler Podcast, coming to you from the Menzies Research Centre in Sydney. Today's guest has been described as America's Uber geographer, an accolade bestowed by the New York Times, no less. Joel Kotkin is Presidential Fellow in Urban Futures at Chapman University in Orange, California, and Executive Director of the Houston-based Center for Opportunity Urbanism. He writes the weekly New Geographer column for Forbes.com, and he's a regular contributor to the Daily Beast and Real, Real Clear Politics. Joel's thinking reaches far beyond the physical landscape of, uh, of our cities and spreads to the people and communities who live there. I think in the past, uh, I might have described him as a sociologist, but that word is very loaded these days, so I hesitate to burden him with the label. Joel Cockin joins me today from Orange County, California. Joel, it's a great pleasure to welcome you to Watercooler. Ah, well, thank you. It's my pleasure. First, Joel, let's, let's get to the thesis of your new book, The Coming of Neo, Neo-Feudalism, A Warning to the Global Middle Class. Let's begin uh, with defining terms, if that's OK. What exactly do you mean by the new feudalism? Well, basically, there are the characteristics of feudalism, which are lack of class mobility, uh, uh, a um, very great concentration of wealth and power, um, the adoption of dogmatic ideologies that are imposed on everyone else, um, and uh, um, and you know many of the other characteristics of the feudal era: low economic growth, low population growth. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, we're, we're, you know, I'm not saying that the, the, the oligarchs who, you know, are increasingly the dominant powers in the world um, are going to don chain mail and broadswords. Um, they have other ways of slicing their, their way into, uh, into power. But we are seeing something very similar in that at the end of the Roman Empire, there was kind of a rush for who was going to inherit uh, what had been um, the imperial um, holdings and the structure. And it was um, very much this sort of new group that came up. And that's the same thing now. That it's, it's as if the digital revolution, it opened up new territories um, and took away from a lot of the traditional businesses. And so this is really a, a new class, which has become the, you know, some of the wealthiest people that have ever existed on the planet. Yeah, and you talk about the aristocracy and uh, the clerisy, the clerisy being the intellectuals, if you like, or the, the intellectual, spiritual, or moral um, compass right. centres, if you like. Well, come on, we might talk about a bit more about that later. But Joel, sure. uh, first, for the benefit of Australian listeners, let's try and place you on the political scale. I gather you're a protégé of Michael Harrington, who was a, right. a, an avowed Marxist and was on Edgar J. Hoover's master list uh, and an eloquent uh, intellectual uh, critic of uh, Milton Friedman. Uh, right. I take it then you wouldn't describe yourself as a conservative. No, although, you know, in this bizarre universe that we now inhabit, um, anyone who doesn't go with the woke agenda is a conservative. I mean, it's, you know, we're seeing here in the United States um, and around the world, People who are traditionally, I would describe myself as an old-fashioned social democrat. Um, you know, I think you know how how can capitalism help make people's lives better? 
uh, respect for democratic principles. I'm doing an essay right now for Quillette, which happens to be based in Sydney, um, on um, on the future of social democracy. Um, this was, you know, this was a very different kind of, of progressivism than the one we have now. So what happens is if, if your main concerns is how is the middle and working class go, going to do better? How do we uh, break down the concentrations of wealth and power, which are traditionally fairly liberal, even left wing concerns? Uh, but if you do that now, you're really you're really on the outside. I mean, part of it is that the corporations have now signed on to this the woke agenda and to the, you know, the the Green New Deal agenda and things like that, which are completely inimical in many ways to middle and working class interests. So, I mean, what's essentially happened is that the, and I'm actually writing about this right now, that the historical parties that backed the middle and working classes, the Australian Labour Party, the British Labour Party, the French Socialist Party, the American Democratic Party, uh, the uh, Canadian Liberal Party, have all gone, and, and the Social Democrats, of course, in Germany, have all become parties of the professional classes of the of what I would call the clerisy. And in this country, at least, um, now, of course, we have a different structure because the amount of money gets spent on campaigns. If you look at where did Wall Street's money go? Where did the tech oligarchs money go? Um, where did the wealthiest people go? Overwhelmingly to the Democratic Party. 41 of the 50 wealthiest districts in the United States congressional districts are Democratic now. Um, you, you're almost hard pressed to find uh, any of the top 20, 30 billionaires in America to be anything other than died in the wool Democrats, particularly when you get under the age of 50. So we're really looking at this sort of consolidation of sort of wokedom and the oligarchy, um, which itself is very feudalistic. Yeah, so that 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 reaction against this uh, new aristocracy and the the doctrines of the woke uh, clerisy and their ambitions to rule over us as feudal overlords, um, that seems to confront uh, a lot of people on the left as well as the right. It seems to me in an increasing amount. Let me let me test a thesis with you. Uh, Possibly during the Trump era, people felt they had to back their home team, as it were, and, and, and uh, there, there wasn't a lot of debate across the aisle on this. But it seems to me in the post-Trump era, more and more, uh, there seems to be an affinity between people who might have called themselves Democrats and people who call themselves Republicans, both of whom, uh, both groups being equally as, uh, as um, uh, awkward, if you like, with the whole woke, uh, the woke agenda. Would that be true? Well, I think there's a really interesting conflict that's developing um, within the uh, within the Democratic Party itself, which is that we have a you know the traditional base of the Democratic Party is you know, working class, middle class Americans, a lot of them in the suburbs, um, uh, and that that base, as it has occurred in Australia and the UK and Canada, has now drifted further to the right, um, not necessarily because they believe in free market capitalism um, necessarily, but because they believe that the the Democratic Party has sort of, as Ronald Reagan once said, uh, left them, that they, um, that, you know, how could you as a, let's say a Latino uh, um, uh, oil worker in West Texas want 
Joe Biden to ban frack? Um, how how are you as an as a sort of aspiring homeowner going to support policies that that essentially make it very difficult to build single family homes? Um, so I think that what we have is this disconnect, and a lot of people who are not really conservatives at all, but are finding themselves sort of forced into the uh, conservative space. I mean, I find as a writer, and I've written for the New York Times, Washington Post, uh, LA Times um, on a regular basis. Those places are pretty hard to get into with anything other than woke points of view. The the degree of homogeneity um, intellectually um, is really quite astounding. And so what you're seeing is some of the best minds on the left are increasingly more comfortable with the right than with the progressives. I, I'm thinking of Glenn Greenwald, Matt Taibbi, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, Sullivan. Um, there's a series of them who are now increasingly feel that they have to publish. Um, uh, Barry Weiss. I mean, there's a there's a lot of them, and then you have the whole phenomena of publications like Spiked and Unheard in the UK, uh, Tablet here in the US, and the people who running those are not your traditional conservatives at all. But the the stridency of the progressive uh, establishment is so difficult. I mean, I can have I can write a piece for National Review and you know. Uh, you know, and uh, Richard Lowry, the editor, can say, well, okay, I don't agree with this. I don't agree with that. Well, it's a different point of view. Somebody could write a piece with a completely different point of view. That's no problem. Very difficult to do at the New York Times. I mean, except unless you happen to have a contract as a uh, as a columnist, um, very, very difficult. I, as my editor at the LA Times, which is the last mainstream, big mainstream publication I write for, uh, She's um, one of the uh, editors said, well, the young editors are wondering, why should we publish things we disagree with? Yeah. Whereas, whereas when I was in newspapers, we might have deliberately published things we disagreed with because we knew it would start at a pate. But uh, to, to, to get back to the thesis of your book, The, the New Feudalism. So I think what, uh, what was alarming for me and I think should be for every Australian who reads this book, and people should, is the fate of the middle class. So yes. the, the feudal class, the aristocrats and the clerisy, uh, on the one hand, uh, the, the, uh, the serfs, as you call them, the, the sort of working class on the other, but right there in the middle, the middle class. And, and, and you'd be well aware as a visitor of this country, somebody who studied the history and geography of this country, of the importance of the forgotten people, as Menzies Robert Menzies called them, those people right. who are constantly in danger of being ground between the upper and nether middle stones of a false war. The middle class who properly regarded represent the backbone of this country. Now, post-war Australia was built on the enterprise and energy of that uh, middle class, but you see their future as being in peril because of the rise of the new aristocracy. Right, and one of the biggest ways this is done is through environmental policy, which discourages single-family homes, that gives priority to, you know, nothing wrong with people living in dense urban neighborhoods, but should they be favored on over more family-oriented neighborhoods? 
Um, Australia and Sydney in particular has some of the worst housing prices of any place in the world. Um, and it, it's, I'm old enough to remember walking in Sydney 20 years ago and being amazed how a middle-class person could live really well, even in the city of Sydney. Um, the memory that always sticks in my mind is I remember I had a speech in Perth and the fellow who picked me up, you know, he picked me up, he's taking me to the hotel. And I said, oh, well, where do you live? And he pointed up to the hill and he said, I live up there. And I also own a couple of other houses. And I was so impressed. I said, what a great country that some guy who's basically a livery service is able to own houses and speculate in real estate. I mean, I was amazed. I think that's become very difficult. I think I would be very surprised if his children have the, have the same opportunity. Well, I think that's true. And I think everybody... Everybody watching this in Australia be well aware of that phenomena. The other thing that I think is disappearing uh, or in threat of disappearing from Australian society is egalitarianism, which, which yes. I, I, I'm a migrant to this country. I came here in 1989. And, and one of the things I really loved about this country was it was so flatly egalitarian. You know, as D.H. Lawrence wrote about it, wrote about it in the 1920s. It's a country where it's okay to be better off than somebody, but it's not okay to claim you are better than somebody. Everybody's of equal worth. Mm. And um, if, if I might do something uh, probably a little bit uh, impertinent, uh, Joel, and that's not a quote from your book, but a quote from a book that I wrote in 2013 when I was sort of looking back on the country I came to and the country it was becoming, and I wrote that for the first time, there were people who did not simply feel better off, but felt better than their fellow Australians. They were cosmopolitan and sophisticated. Uh, they were well-read, or so they would have us believe, and politically aware. Their presumption of virtue set them apart from the common herd. They were neither racist nor sexist. They claimed to be indifferent to material wealth. They ate healthily. They drank in moderation. Uh, and if they weren't gay themselves, they made a show of solidarity with all their friends who were. Uh, you, you'd be familiar with the, that picture, I guess. <laughs> is that your clerisy? Is that is that your new aristocracy? Oh, oh yes. I mean, very similar um, here in the United States, and particularly here in California, it, it, there's clearly a, um, a an amazing bias. I, I ran into it in, the, I think, of one of the columnists, I think, in the Sydney Morning Herald, uh, which was this incredible attack on, on people who live in the suburbs. I mean, that they really think that people live in the suburbs are some sort of inferior species um, who don't have the proper consciousness. Um, I, I know that there was a tremendous reaction in the intelligentsia to any idea that the that the prime minister might have religious views that were not uh, um, you know were, that were um, actually committed as opposed to um, just uh, there for uh, public consumption. So I, I mean I think that there's there's a sense of and I think this is also very true with Silicon Valley. I'm a guy I know has done interviews with about 160 founders of tech companies. And what he says among the pick of the younger ones, they don't believe that the middle class will come back. They don't believe that the people who buy their products are ever going to own a house, start a business. And, um, and they really believe that they are a superior business elite because it's based on their technological um, uh, uh, prowess. And so, you know, 
you know, in the old days, you know, you had people who had money, but they didn't necessarily feel themselves to be, you know, superior. They maybe they worked harder, um, but they didn't have this kind of sense of being part of a meritocracy. So what you now have in a lot of the Western countries, and certainly in the United States, is the education industry, the media industry, the entertainment industry are amazingly woke. I mean, it is just, I mean, sometimes like, you know, I'm watching, if I'm watching something and I'm just like, do they ever show a, a, like a straight family with nice relations? I mean, in some of the, the, the more recent stuff, the only good relationships are gay. Now, I have nothing against gay people. That's perfectly okay with me. But, you know, maybe the family is kind of important. Um, and we have to realize that at, at a fundamental level, many of the people, the woke movement, like, for instance, Black Lives Matter, they're not even in favor of the nuclear family. They're, they're in favor of some sort of more collectivistic worldview, you know, sort of reflecting back on some of the things that Engels wrote about in the 19th century. I mean, there really is a hostility to what we might call middle-class values. And in the past, progressives uh, or people on the left didn't have that. They were patriotic. They, they, they believed in their country. They were, um, uh, they were certainly not um, willing to say, well, we should discriminate in a way to favor one group over another. And, and that's really been lost. And um, I, look, I have to say a lot of the blame begins at the university level. And I see this with the young reporters who I run into who don't even understand that the job of a news reporter, which I spent a lot of my life doing, was really about um, giving the reader information so they can think for themselves. I read stories now, my, my poor wife has to hear me sometimes scream when I would read the New York Times. And I said, who, where the hell was the editor? Didn't they ever ask? You know, if you're doing a story, for instance, saying, well, we're going to have all these greater uh, um, natural catastrophes and it's worse than it's ever been. And then a, a, some of very distinguished climate scientists says, well, actually there have been less and, you know, um, than there were in the past. At least as a reporter, you should be looking for contrary examples. Even if you think the uh, the 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 official narrative is right, you should say now there are some who disagree. But what we're seeing now, and that's true with COVID, it's true with race, it's true with police, it's it it it's true um, with gender issues. You can't even raise an objection without being threatened to be taken off. Amazon taken off uh, uh, the 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 um, Facebook platform, the Google platform. All of us who write about these things um, and are not following the party line, we all live in in fear of being canceled. I mean, it it just hovers over over us. Um, that's why people like Glenn Greenwald and Matt Taibbi and uh, and Andrew Sullivan have gone to Substack because they they feel that they that they're that they can't really work. Even Matt Iglesias from Vox has gone to Substack. I mean, basically, a great part of what you would call liberal intelligentsia um, has been essentially written off and is now, you know, in a funny way, in a weird alliance with the conservatives, just because the conservatives aren't in favor of censorship. So you've got this, you've got this uh, 
change in what we used to call the traditional media, but of course now bleeding over, if you like, into high tech, into Silicon Valley, into social media, into the internet. You, you probably read recently that our, our government, our federal government here bravely took on um, social media and Google, uh, insisting that they pay for news content that they essentially lift from uh, traditional media. And, and that was the issue. But underlying it, I felt, we, we, was, a, was a proxy war, if you like, over this very issue that you write about, which is the dominance of Silicon Valley now in trying to control what we can read and think about. Uh, you know, I was shocked during COVID that an article in The Spectator, very established, very uh, respected magazine, as you know, one of the oldest magazines in the English language, an article about uh, some alternative treatments for uh, COVID or possible alternative treatments for COVID-19. Uh, I, I reposted this story and my Facebook page was taken down. Uh, it happened to be an article by my wife, incidentally, so I had particular interest in it, but that, 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 that shook me. I mean, we've come to rely on social media so much to communicate with one another, and yet now it's being censored. Who are these censors? You're in, you're in California. Tell us, who are the people that are pushing the censorship right. buttons? Well, I, th I think it's a lot of it, I think, is a small, it's being pushed in part, A, by the political class here in California, which is, you know, right now we're, we're a one-party state, you know, not too, you know, more Soviet than American in some senses. Um, but what I've been told by executives in Silicon Valley is that they're scared of their own employees that these, uh, and particularly the ones who are in HR, public relations, not necessarily the nerds, you know, the real uh, software guys, but, but in the organization. And as the, the head of the Bay Area Council said to me, he said, basically the, the people in Silicon Valley are scared of their own employees. They're so worried that, um, that they may offend their own employees and be called racist or uh, anti-science or whatever the term you want to use these days, um, that they they kowtow. And of course, one of the, um, not necessarily an oddity, but one of the problems is the two places that dominate the digital world, um, the Puget Sound and Northern California, the Bay Area, are also the most uniformly left-wing parts of the United States. Um, you know, as liberal as New York, which is where I'm from originally, the, as liberal as New York is, there is a thriving conservative and even conservative democratic world there. That barely exists in California. There's there the, um, the, the conservative infrastructure is very weak and there's virtually no moderate infrastructure. And, you know, what we're going to be living with, all of us in the next 20 or 30 years, is when the Gates, you know, while well, Gates is already doing it, you've got um, Zuckerberg's going to do it. These people with phenomenal amounts of money, with nonprofits who can essentially determine what studies get made, um, have, you know, have enormous millions. And you, know, you think of Black Lives Matter has, you know, 80, 90 million dollars in the bank. Now that comes mostly from large you know, corporations, nonprofits. So you have an organization that is openly, openly uh, radical Marxist, critical race theory, 
with enormous amounts of money from the wealthiest people in the country. You know, in a lot of ways, it reminds me of reading De Tocqueville. And, um, and I talk about this in neo-feudalism, about aristocracies who sort of have lost the, the, idea, the appreciation of the very values that made their rise possible. And I think that's what we're seeing. I mean, long-term, you know, um, Jeff Bezos, you know, should realize that at some point they're going to come after him. I mean, they've already started. Um, and what they try to do is they, they try to placate the, the, the woke on issues of race, issues of gender, uh, the pandemic. Um, but what they don't want to see is as if you're going to really be a progressive is you've got to go after their money. They're not going to like that very much. It's the extent to which they control our culture, which is uh, frightening, isn't it? I mean, Amazon, for instance. I mean, we've got used to one of the great things about Amazon and the Internet is we can we can get books as soon as they're published. I downloaded your ebook and read it as an ebook, uh, which is more and more what we do. That's fantastic. But of course, now we are literally at the mercy of Amazon as to what we can and cannot read a lot of the time, and and you know notoriously they've they've prevented they've they've pulled a few books from their list. They're very hard to get in Australia. It, it, it's the it's, it's do you see the equivalent of this in in medieval Europe? Is are we talking oh, about God, the same yes. clerisy and the same aristocracy? Yeah, I mean you think of um, you know in the 13th century um, the, the the University of Paris had a, you know basically colloquia on demons. Um, you know, the there were things you could say and things you couldn't say. Um, and that really didn't change very much um, in some cases to the 17th and 18th century. Um, so so what, you, what you have is this idea that there's a certain, there's certain parameters that you can debate in and that, and that gap is getting smaller and smaller there's less and less heterogeneity. And that's one of the key things of a feudal society is if you, you know, the danger for, for the aristocracy is if the middle class um, actually has information and actually can think for itself. And what, you're, what you do is you make it impossible to have certain kinds of thoughts or you certainly can't share them. Um, I mean, I found some of the, like, uh, the censorship around the COVID thing. Look, obviously there are crackpots out there who are saying stupid things. Um, but the reality is that if sometimes you have distinguished scientists who have a different point of view, same thing with climate. And these people have been put into what I call the digital gulag. Um, they are essentially, they are no longer respectable um, because they diverged um, from points. Look, I've put together conferences and because I had a speaker who has been very aggressive talking about um, uh, uh, crime and, and, and violence in, in cities and police brutality at, with the views that are a little bit different, I, we got hysterical responses from groups, for instance, on campus who are, you know, who are upset with anyone who has any point of view. You talk to anybody who teaches today. And you ask them, are they afraid that if they say the wrong thing, they can lose their job? Um, these are things that we never saw before, you know, where, you know, somebody reading Huckleberry Finn and use and 
you know, Twain uses the, the, the you know, um, uh, the N word, which you're not supposed to ever say, um, you know, sounds like something out of the Kabbalah. I mean, it's just so incredibly insane. Um, and yet this is one of the great works of, of literature by a man whose spirit was very liberal in, in the case of, of, of Twain. We have people who tear down the statues of General Grant, who was, you know, the guy who, who won the Civil War. I mean, and, and was was the most pro-African-American um, uh, president until probably President Johnson. So, you know, maybe President Truman. So, you know, the, the, the reality is we are now being put into this sort of weird box. And what, what I think a lot of people do is they just sort of say, they don't say anything. They, they, they're afraid to stand up. Um, and, and I think this, this is very, very much a medieval as opposed to a, in a small L liberal society. Yeah, and the effect of shutting down scientific debate or free scientific debate on subjects is, is effectively that we no longer expand the boundaries of human knowledge, do we? we, we in fact, it starts to retreat well, I mean, and, and, and also, you, you know, I know enough history to know very often what we thought was true turned out not to be true. I mean, if you go to the Club of Rome or Paul Ehrlich's The Population Bomb, you would have thought that we would already have had mass starvation instead of the, you know, less famine than we've had in human history. Um, so, you know, it's the predictions are wrong. You know, I remember years ago um, asking my late father, who was a taught at a medical school. And I said, who do you think killed the most people in history? And he said, doctors. Because he said, not that we meant to kill people, but we didn't know that the treatments that he learned in Boston in the 1930s turned out to be completely negative and, 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 and in some cases deadly. You know, I mean, the idea that, that our understanding keeps changing and that very often the best ideas are never going to come from from the establishment, whether they're right or left ideas, they're going to come from people from the outside. They're going to come from people who are not part of an institution, who are not there to defend um, the powerful, or who who don't have the the imprimatur of of the most elite um, institutions. Um, that's where the 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 excitement is, and that's where the debate is. I mean, look, I'm perfectly happy to, to, you know, deal with the debate on the pandemic or climate change. And I think what we come up with is we may have some more nuanced views, maybe some things we'd never thought about. You know, one of the great experiences I've always had is a, you know, I've written 10 books and I'm, you know, obviously I've written quite a few articles in my life is when I read something, I said, you know, I never thought of that. And that could come from somebody on the left or somebody from the right. I'm reading a great book uh, called Despised by Paul Embry, a, a British labor leader. And he talks about, about how, you know, the, the British media has so miscast the working class people in, in Britain and sort of tried to put them in, in a certain hole. And then if you try to dispute this, you, you get, you know, you get shoved to the side. So look, there are now you, you know, just like, as I mentioned with the, the Bay Area Council fellow, um, same thing's happening in publishing. I mean, a, you know, pathetically small industry compared to Silicon Valley. But, you know, if, if look, look at the, the at Hachette and some of the other publishers where there's where the staff says, we don't want to publish this book. 
what do you mean you don't want to publish this book? You know, because, you know, it could be written by a U.S. senator. It could be um, it, it could be a book, for instance, about uh, about maybe that maybe we should be reluctant to to start giving drugs, uh, transgendering drugs to um, to 10 year olds. I mean, look, you can agree with it or disagree with it. But the, but the debate should be joined, and it is the fundamental genius of liberal society and of liberal capitalism to allow for open debate. That's how things get better. That's why in the United States we were able to so outpace the Soviet Union because the Soviet Union had very, very strong uniformity of thought in technology and science, and that hurt them greatly. I, I know uh, people who came from the Soviet Union, of course, my family fortunately came before the revolution, but um, who, uh, but people who left in the 70s and 80s, and they'll say, well, you know, we wanted to talk to them about semiconductors, but they said um, a semiconductor was a capitalist invention and they should stick with vacuum tubes. I mean, you know, th this sort of idea that there is a fixed series of ideas that you have to hold on to and you can't allow debate. I can't think of anything that is more medieval in mindset than that. Well, let's go to the universities. We, we've skirted around them. Let, let's, let's name <laughs> and shame them. Universities, as you point out in your book, used to be great uh, champions of, of uh, free thought and inquiry, expanding our knowledge, uh, testing accepted or conventional wisdom and seeing if they could, uh, they could uh, shake it up a bit. Now they play a very, very different role, don't they? It seems to me more as enforcers of a fixed doctrine rather than any sense of actually expanding human knowledge. And and, and of course, in some senses, it, it, it will be ultimately self-destructive. More companies are beginning to realize that these degrees that are being minted are not particularly worthwhile. Um, we're seeing what's happening in the humanities and the social science. Nobody, you know, I mean, I can tell you, you know, these the history is now being um, studied less than any time in modern in, in the last 50 years. There are just fewer and fewer history students. Literature, look what they've done to literature. They've turned it into something incredibly obtuse, incredibly limited. Um, you know, there are now you can go get a degree in English at Yale without studying Shakespeare. The guy invented the goddamn language. I don't get it. I mean. Um, my my 16 year old daughter, who's an actress, she goes and and, and does Shakespeare's um, uh, monologues. I mean, she's she knows how, you know what a great thing. When I think about my own past and and you know what really affected me, whether it was you know obviously the Hebrew Bible, but it was then you know reading Caesar, reading Tacitus, reading Cicero. That was like a a. a walking into a world that was so rich. And it, it doesn't have to be, well, only Western. There were great thinkers, uh, particularly um, in, the, uh, in the Islamic and Chinese uh, civilizations. But you know, one of the things that is scariest of all is, okay, they've ruined history, they've ruined English, they've, they've ruined the social sciences, you know, so that you know, it's pretty much uniform now. Now they're going after the hard sciences and mathematics. And, um, you know, the president of, of Chapman, who's a great guy and a great believer in free speech and an Italian, um, a mathematician. And, he, he, you know, and when I, told, I showed him an article about mathematics is a, 
um, is, is a racist thing, you know, opposed by Europe. He said, don't they realize that, that algebra is Arabic and that, you know, the Romans could never do math, right? Because the Roman numerals didn't work the way the Arabic numerals, which actually I think originally came from India. Um, the, the idea that something like mathematics is, is sort of racially defined is, it shows you the extent of insanity that we're now, um, we're now uh, heading towards. Um, and again, this is very similar to um, what happened in the Soviet Union, because my family being from Russia, I was always interested in that, and the kind of things that happened under Mao. What's interesting to me is as bad as China is, and it's bad in many ways, I've been going there for many years, but one of the things I would say is I don't think President Xi <laughs> you know, thinks that math is, is, is racist. I think President Xi thinks math is a tool to develop economy, military, um, and other kinds of power. You know, he wouldn't be saying, well, I don't really care if the answers are right or wrong. Um, I mean, the, 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 kind of, the, the kind of insanity that's happened in the universities, and the universities have become so large, so bloated, so powerful, um, and they have such influence. Um, you know, one of the, uh, uh, one, you know, I see it in, in, in my old business journalism, which is, you know, um, the journalism schools are just, they're, they're, they're essentially teaching people not to be good reporters and to be people who inform the public, but they want to indoctrinate the public. Um, and actually, um, Jerry Baker, the former uh, editor of the Wall Street Journal, <laughs> once said, that once he gets an application with somebody with a Columbia journalism school or or, or one of the other big journalism schools, he puts he puts the application in the trash basket. Um, I, I mean, I I don't I don't see wh what we're doing, but essentially, you know, undermining um, the, the 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 validity of many professions. And again, the scary thing to me is it's now moving from Eng English, which was the beginning of, of the insanity, to history, to social science, and now into the hard sciences. And if that happens, and if the United States, which is, you know, let's face it, there are two really important countries in the world right now, the United States and China. If the United States disarms this way intellectually, we're looking at a Chinese century. Well, um, you, you presented in here, if I may call it, uh, such a dystopian vision. Um, now, come on, where's the point of redemption here? Where's the redemptive side of this? How can we break free from this new yeah, feudalism? Thank, thank you for asking that. Um, look, first of all, we are already seeing in many countries that the middle and working classes are not buying it. I mean, nobody expected the... the uh, Australian Labour Party to win that last election. Yeah, the Liberal Party. Um, yeah, the the British Labour Party was um, ha, is at the lowest um, point it's been in a very long time. Uh, the French Socialist Party is a is nothing compared to what it once was. Um, and what's really interesting to me is here in the United States, and I think there's some of this is true in Britain. I know for sure, a lot of the immigrants who came, you know, they come to this country for political liberty, for uh, economic liberty, for the opportunity to make a living, raise a family, buy a house, things that are very difficult to do in many of these other countries. 
and many of them are are becoming dissatisfied with this. We saw it here in um, in California that Asian and even Latino voters voted against a uh, affirmative action, you know, essentially a quota bill, because they uh, they they thought that that wasn't proper. And of course, in the case of the Asians, they were discriminated against. Um, we see um, Latino voters voting in remarkably high numbers for a man named Donald Trump, who, you know, can easily be characterized as a racist. I, you know, I personally think he's a despicable human being, but, but the, but the reality is they were saying, we really, we do better under Trump. And actually they did, they did better economically under Trump than they did under Obama. And as they're likely to do under, uh, um, under Biden, unless Biden can keep, you know, handing out free money. Um, so I think I think that there there there's hope, and I think I have some hope for what's called the Z generation. Um, the millennials, I think, will eventually begin to change once they buy houses and have kids. You know, they may begin to get to some more reasonable point, but but the Zs, the new generation, um, they're much more skeptical. I find my students now more skeptical than they were ten years ago. My sixteen-year-old is really skeptical. I mean, she, she'll, you know, somebody will say, that's racist. She said, no, I don't know. Why is that racist? And then she'll argue against it. Um, and she tells me that the disease can't stand the millennials. They say they, they dislike the millennials even more than they dislike the boomers. So, you know, I think that there, you know, things go in cycles. And I think the, the more absurd the, pro, the program of the progressives is, the more likely there's going to be pushback. And um, look, even in this last election, frankly, if it hadn't been for COVID, Trump would have been reelected, I think. Um, even with COVID, um, Republicans did very well at the local level and picked up seats in the House. Who would have predicted this? With an entire media and corporate establishment, universities, Hollywood, all against them, almost in unprecedented unity, hundreds of millions of dollars spent. Um, nevertheless, a lot of voters voted Republican. They voted Republican on the local level here in, in Orange County, two seats flipped from Democrat to Republican. Now, it's, it, it, it's only at the early stages, um, but I do think there's pushback. I think at some point there's common sense. You know, when when people say, well, Single-family homes are racist. This is one of their favorites. And I said, well, how can it be racist when most suburbs are now more integrated than the cities are? I mean, I know in Australia, we know where where are the Middle Eastern and, and, and Asian immigrants moving? Once they get over 40, they move to the suburbs. I mean, I can tell you, like, if you want really good Vietnamese food, you get it in Orange County. You want good Chinese food, you get it in the L.A. suburbs. If you want good Indian food, you go to Fort Bend County, Texas. I mean, we're really this. So this ethnic change. And the other thing is that the ethnics are moving to suburbs. They're also moving to some of the uh, smaller cities in the heartland cities. So I, I think common sense is our is our great hope that that people will start looking at things and saying, this doesn't make any sense. Um Yes, the family is important. We're seeing this now with education. I don't know what's going on in Australia, but the the shutdowns of the schools are leading people to homeschool, 
move to suburban locations that have opened, move different to different parts, go to private schools. Um, you know, at some point, something unreasonable will get pushback. And so that's where I think there's hope. Uh, you talk about the peasants' revolt, and I guess uh, Donald Trump's victory uh, four years ago was, in a sense, a peasants' revolt. Now it's been a peasants' revolt that's been uh, crushed, if you like. Um, it's going to take a, a little bit, something a little bit more uh, sustainable, isn't it? Uh, some A movement that has got a little bit more behind it, I think, to really yes. uh, push back well, in a serious way long term. Of course, we've seen that with Brexit. That was a good example, too, of a peasant revolt. Um, almost the entire establishment opposed it, but it, it passed. Um, but, you know, I think that, that what you're going to see is you're going to see that, that um, what, what you really need, and I, 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 as a longtime Democrat, I wish I could say that there will be a move in the Democratic Party, but I think the party is probably too far gone. The most interesting stuff going on now in America are, is a whole new group of people who are Republicans, conservatives, but have adopted social democratic principles. Um, for instance, in favor of there being um, uh, uh, subsidies for people raising children or making it easier to buy a house. Um, you know, positions that were, if anything, as much John Curtin as, uh, as Menzies. You know, this was this kind of Republicanism Marco Rubio is one of them, the Compass Group. I mean, right now, the discussion, for instance, about, about the monopoly power of companies like Amazon, there's a kind of alliance between the sort of Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders left, and a good part of the Republican Party. Um, so, I mean, I think that, that what's, what's going to be needed, is if you could have some parts of the Trump agenda, but but led by somebody who's more of a decent human being, who isn't an egomaniac, who is, you know, who who knows how to to control what he says a bit, um, who's more empathetic. Um, I think it, um, I think there would be a great potential. You know, it could be a, you know, a Tim Scott from South Carolina. It could be um, some you know some other figure who's who's going to emerge. I mean, unfortunately progressive parties right now or left-wing parties have been so taken over that it will be very difficult to move them. The conservative parties are more uncertain and and by nature these days more open to debate. I mean that's one of the things you know when I write for you know National Review one of the things I like about them is they'll be pro-Trump, anti-Trump, pro-free trade, anti-free trade, um, you know all different kinds of points of view and right now Unfortunately, as somebody who comes from the social democratic background, I find a much more bracing and interesting and informative intellectual environment on the right than on the left. Well, Joel, it's been a great pleasure to uh, welcome you to Water Cooler. I hope the first of uh, many appearances. Uh, your new book, The Coming of Neo-Feudalism, A Warning to the Global Middle Class by Joel Cockin. Uh, you can get it still, I think, on Amazon. So get it before they take it down. We, have, we haven't been, you know, we haven't been cancelled yet. I mean, I think, you know, frankly, they they don't seem to be cancelling people who disagree economically. Um, they're, they're, right now, it seems to be race, climate, 
uh, the pandemic is what's leading it. And maybe I'm I'm just, even though the book has sold a lot of copies, I maybe I'm just too obscure to bother with. <laughs> uh, well, I'm sure not, and I'm sure it'll sell many more. Joel, thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you. It's my pleasure. You've been listening to the Water Cooler podcast coming to you from the Menzies Research Centre in Sydney. To help us build an audience for this great free content, then we'd value your feedback. You can email me, Nick Cater, at watercooler at menziesrc.org. You can also become one of the growing number of people who help support this work by becoming a subscriber to the Menzies Research Centre. You can become a subscriber from just $10 a month. Go to menziesrc.org, menziesrc.org. I'm Nick Cater. Thank you for listening.